0: Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, and our third episode of the First Intermediate Period. The warfare which engulfed the First Intermediate Period, and brought about the establishment of the Middle Kingdom, is a lengthy discussion, and cannot be successfully broken into yet another episode. With that in mind, I have staggered the narrative into smaller parts, each of which is indicated by a short musical break. If you're like me, Chances are you'll consume this episode over more than one setting. To make it easier, each music break is followed by a quick recap of where things are sitting. Hopefully, this will make it easier to follow the long narrative of warfare without losing track of players and locations. So without further ado, part three of the first intermediate period. In the year 2070 BCE, Egypt has been decentralized, broken up into smaller kingdoms and principalities. The royal household of the old kingdom has long passed into memory, the only testament to their power, the enormous pyramids lining the Nile Valley. Now the country is divided roughly between north and south, with two rival households squaring off in their attempts to restore the divine kingship, to the north the House of Keti rules from a city known to modern historians as Heracleopolis. To the south, at Thebes, a rival family is in power, named the House of Intef. Intef and Keti were both local princes, who managed to expand their power at the expense of their neighbours, and establish family-held kingdoms with sufficient strength to dominate their respective corners of the Nile Valley. Each of these families, is now several generations removed from their founder. Over this period, the slow build-up of military and economic strength has reached the point where both houses can begin to think about actually reunifying Egypt. Indeed, it seems fairly likely that the economic decline which plagued the late 6th dynasty has been healed. Although the divided kingdom is not as wealthy as it was in the 4th dynasty, the general trend of famine seems to have ended. Now, local rulers are instituting what we might think of as urban renewal projects. The local chieftain of Assiut, who was, unfortunately, named Keti, just like the household to whom he owed allegiance, erected a small stele to commemorate some of the efforts he made in reviving his community's fortunes. Quote, I made a water supply for this city, in the hill which had never seen water. I secured the borders. I made the elevated land into a swamp. I caused the water of the Nile to flood over the ancient hills. I made arable land into water. Every neighbour was supplied with water, and every citizen had Nile water to his heart's desire. I gave water to his neighbours, and he was content with them. End quote. What the chieftain Ketty is describing here is a local effort to expand irrigation, and thus increase the amount of farmland available for the community. It is a difficult thing to achieve, and continues to be one of the main priorities of local governments and farmers in Egypt and Sudan to the modern day. Without the benefit of mechanized tools, or hydroelectric dams, the ancient Egyptians managed to create surprisingly large tracts of fertile land, purely by manpower and copper tools. We should recognise these achievements alongside efforts like the pyramids. I have to admit that in some ways I like these little projects even more. After all, the pyramids were grandiose monuments for a very small group of individuals. Irrigation and the extension of farmland Those things are pretty good for the community at large. I can't help but get behind that. I suppose it helps that I'm very much an economic historian, but still, these little testaments remind us that Egypt was a land of small, individual projects and ideas. There was great energy in the population, particularly during an era like the first intermediate period, when the climate and economy are starting to rebound. Indeed. The chieftain Ketty's proclamation went even further in describing the work he put into his domain. Quote, "I was rich in grain, when the land was in need, I maintained the city with car and with hecate. I allowed the citizen to carry away with himself grain and his wife, the widow, and her son. I filled the pastures with cattle, the cows brought forth twofold, the folds were full of calves." I was one rich in monuments of the temple, who increased that which he found, who repeated offerings." Quotes like this are the absolute essence of elite behaviour in the late Old Kingdom and first intermediate period. Far from being simple landed gentry making little contribution to their community, the local rulers of Egyptian towns and provinces placed great value on productive work and service. For the chieftain Keti, irrigation and extensive agriculture were the ways to build one's name and reputation, and ensure that one was judged favourably in the afterlife. They also remind us that the first intermediate period was not a time of universal chaos. Although there was no single king dominating the mythological and cultural landscape, there was still peace and plenty to be had. For those outside of the elite ruling class, life persisted in the same rhythm it had done for thousands of years. The disruptions to the climate, which preceded 2070 BCE, had perhaps made life a little harder, but humans are nothing if not adaptable. For the local chieftains, any situation of hardship gave a very good opportunity to improve one's social standing and fulfill the obligations which existed between the ruler and the ruled. You might call it noblesse oblige, but really we should call it ma'at. To preserve the balance of life was a good act, one that allowed the gods to maintain order and fend off chaos. The form of this preservation was far more intimate and personal than we are used to today. Chances are you will very rarely get An opportunity to meet your local political representative, assuming of course that you live in a democratic nation. They may be absent for long periods of time, in the capital city overseeing legal matters and policy, or they may be one of those poor souls whose jurisdiction covers millions of citizens, with such an overwhelming scope of responsibility that getting any single policy off the ground is a nightmare. For the Egyptians, Rule was a little bit more direct, a bit more hands-on. The chieftain most likely lived within his community, and probably visited the capital only once a year or so, depending on where he lived in the country. If a peasant needed restitution over an affair, he went to his local chieftain, who probably lived in a house within the same small area. For the chieftains themselves, such petitions were yet another opportunity to show just how benevolent and well-meaning they were, or claimed to be. Listen, for instance, to the testament of a chieftain named Eat Ebi, which means, my heart comes forth. Discussing his personal style of ruling, Eat Ebi praises himself in particular for generosity and a sense of accessibility, keeping his door open to all. Quote, Hearken to me, ye who are to come, I was open-handed to everyone. I was one of excellent plans, one useful to his city, one receptive to petitions, one who listened to the widow. When night came, he who slept on the road gave me praise, for he was safe like a man in his house. The fear of my soldier was his protection." Like the chieftain Keti that I mentioned earlier. The chieftain Eat Ebi put a very high premium on appearing as an interested and effective ruler, eager to conform with the ideals of Maat, and perhaps aware that his territory was close to the border. Eat Ebi also emphasized his effective security policies. The idea that a man might sleep in the open with no shelter, and be sure of his personal security, is an interesting one. The chieftain was proud of having an extensive and effective security force, probably a troop of soldiers who had been raised from the community. These troops were both police and defensive force, providing Asyut with security in an uncertain political climate, which, as I hinted earlier, was now gearing up for open warfare. The House of Intef in Thebes was a relative newcomer to the political scene. They had crushed several rival kingdoms, including the illustrious Unk tifi of Edfu, and thus claimed authority over the Nile Valley in the south, from Elephantine to Abydos. If you remember your Egyptian geography, you'll know that Asyut, the town of Eat ebi is only just downriver from Abydos. For Eat ebi and his community, this was a dangerous position to be in. They were loyal to one household, the House of Keti, which ruled the north. This was all well and good in the past, but now the House of Keti could no longer ignore the power of its southern rival. Conflict was coming, and small communities on the border, like Asyut, were going to be in the thick of it. In fact, Eat Ebi's tomb at Asut is one of the best narrative sources for the warfare which erupted around 2070 BCE. Fighting on behalf of the House of Keti, Eat commanded his local troops in defence of the Asyut region. They clashed with raids from the Thebans, and seemed to have engaged in a bit of back and forth warfare over a period of years. I give you an excerpt from his autobiography, quote, The first time that my soldiers fought with the southern provinces, which came together southwards as far as Elephantine, and northward as far as Assute. My troops drove them as far as the southern boundary. When I came to the city, I overthrew the enemy. I drove him as far as the fortress of Abydos. I reached the east side of the river, sailing upstream. There came another enemy, like a jackal with another army from his confederacy. I went out against him, with one troop of soldiers. There was no fear. The enemy hastened to battle, like a bull going forth in vengeance. I ceased not to fight. The enemy fell in the water, his ships ran aground, his army were like bulls when they are attacked by wild beasts, running away with tails between their legs. I drove out rebellion, by the design of Wep Wawet, with the strength of a mighty bull, end quote. Ebe seems to have been victorious during his own governorship, or else he would not have been able to record this narrative in his tomb. Now Egyptian officials are somewhat notorious for completely ignoring even the slightest negativity regarding their accomplishments in life, but had the Thebans conquered Assyut during his lifetime, Eat Ebi would probably not have been permitted to record these events, except in praise of his new masters. So for the time being, Eat managed to hold his own. The battles themselves were mostly fought on land, but no Egyptian commander worth his salt would miss the value of using river boats as transportation. They were faster, could carry more supplies than your average donkey and allowed troops to be landed on either side of the Nile. This was particularly helpful for the warfare of the First Intermediate Period, which often took the form of raids. One group would attack the villages and farmlands of another, taking the materials back to their own community. If an enemy troop happened to be in the vicinity, a pitched battle might occur. But generally, the conflict was more eye for an eye, rather than head-on clashes that you might imagine. That being said, Eat seems to have had the fortune to bring his enemy to direct battle on at least one occasion, possibly more. He engaged directly with troops of the Theban Confederacy and was able to bring them to battle in a riverboat engagement. Naval encounters are more common in Egyptian history than for most cultures of the time. This is for a pretty obvious reason. The Nile was the main transportation route throughout the country, and the Egyptians learned to fight on the water as early as the pre-dynastic period. Eat Eby's engagement with the Thebans probably took place on small rowboats, with archers and spearmen as the marines. Ships would pull alongside one another, with archers firing across the water. If the situation allowed for it, Spearmen might leap the gap between boats to engage in direct conflict. Unlike the Greeks, who became very fond of ramming ships, or the Romans, who perfected boarding engagements, the Egyptians were fighting in a relatively confined space. There's not that much room in the Nile for ramming, and the technology did not yet exist to support heavy boarding planks and armoured legionaries, and still remain afloat. The Egyptian soldiers were lightly armed, with a shield and a spear. They did not tend to wear armour, and relied more on prowess in combat, and the protection of their comrades' shields, to get through the engagement. Although we have no real description of Egyptian tactics, the weaponry they left behind favours both a rudimentary shield-wall tactic, and more one-on-one combat using axes and spears. I suspect the individual, personal combat is what happened in the battles on the Nile. Imagine trying to keep a group of men in formation while navigating a ship, getting shot at by enemy archers, and somehow keeping your boat from capsizing. Better to simply let them move individually, as long as they did not stop the attack until the enemy was defeated. Indeed, Eat E.B. seems particularly proud of this last point. In his testament, he uses animal imagery to emphasise the ferocity of his enemy, and proudly states that he did not cease his attack at any point. No retreat, just full-on barrage of the foe until they retreat in disarray. Recognising that victory is impossible without divine help, Eat ebi attributed his victory to the blessings of Wep-Wawet, an ancient jackal deity closely linked with Anubis. Wepwawet was particularly venerated at our suit, being what we might call a patron deity of the community. A patron deity is a god particularly favoured by the local populace, and given special treatment. Wepwawet's strength would be a potent aid to eat Ebi's troops. Anubis and Wepwawet are not the same god, exactly. But they do seem to share some similar traits. For the Middle and Upper Egyptian communities, which were closer to the desert than the Delta, the jackals of the desert were a potent symbol of divine presence from the very earliest years of Egyptian culture. It is no wonder, then, that such animals entered into the group of deities who would be responsible for protecting and aiding soldiers in moments of battle. Wep Wawet was one of these it Ebi chased the Theban troops southward to Abydos, and then seems to have ceased his attack. The border remained essentially as it had been, but the House of Inteph's nose had been soundly bloodied by this vassal of the House of Keti. So, the first fires of conflict have broken out, and round one goes to the House of Keti. In the first five years or so of this conflict, battles flowed back and forth on the Nile and in the small communities around Asyut and Abidos, which formed the primary border between the two powers. At Asyut, the local ruler, Eit Ebi, achieved a stable period of governance and went to his grave a proud man. In several battles, he had successfully driven out at least two incursions by the Theban rulers, and their subject princes. He had also enriched his realm, boosting its economy through a careful and direct administration. As a result, the southern border of the House of Keti, located in Eat Ebi's town of Asyut, was a strong one. It had a good economy, seasoned troops who had proven themselves in battle, and an open border. With a hostile family, giving the Northerners an opportunity for glory and conquest, what resulted has all the hallmarks of an ancient Egyptian war crime. The events of Eat Eby's life took place sometime before or during the reign of Keti the Third. After Eat Eby died, Keti the Third was probably still on the throne, and in the didactic literature of his son. Meri Karei, whom we encountered in episode 25, we are told that Keti Third did a very bad thing during his campaigns into Upper Egypt. As I've said, the border between the House of Keti and the House of Intef existed somewhere between the communities of Asyut and Abydos. The intervening area was probably something of a no-man's land, rather than a firmly fixed border. but. You get the general idea. This is where each household's power ended, and where the majority of conflicts occurred during the early stages of the war. Around two thousand and sixty B.C.E., ten years after where we began this episode, Ketty the Third advanced beyond his southern border, and into the territory of the Thebans, flush with the victories achieved by Eat Ebe. Keti's army was able to advance to a community called Thinis, one of the earliest centres of Egyptian royal civilization. We are not exactly sure where Thinis was. The town has not been located by archaeologists. But it was perhaps across the river, or close by to Abydos, one of the other major centres from which Egyptian kingship emerged during the pre-dynastic area. Certainly, Thinnis was the location of many ancient tombs and cult centres, points of great symbolic potency and value to any group claiming kingship over the two lands. To his discredit and apparent regret, Keti III allowed his troops to enter Thinnis and sack it. Not only that, but he allowed them to pillage the royal necropolis which was located near the town the tombs of early kings were looted and the necropolis was desecrated in an act of unforgivable disrespect. Those of you who have absorbed the lessons of Egyptian ancestor worship might be gasping about now. Indeed, in the instructions for King Mary Kare, Keti III supposedly laments this act, quote, The enemy cannot be quiet even within Egypt, but troops shall subdue troops, in accordance with the prophecy of the ancestors, and men fight men, even in the necropolis. Do not attack ancient buildings with an intentional destruction. I acted thus, and so it happened, just as he who had transgressed likewise did against the god. End quote the Third seems to claim responsibility for the desecration of a royal necropolis and the destruction of pre-dynastic buildings, which he likens to an affront against the divine power. Now, there is some uncertainty about whether this little passage is true or not. A very reasonable argument has been put forth for the idea that the instructions of King were embellished or altered during the 12th dynasty, when the Middle Kingdom was well established. The account is generally favourable towards Mary Kare, suggesting that he was remembered fondly, but the references to the Third, in the text I mean, all suggest that he let bloodlust get the better of him, or possibly that a later writer altered the account slightly to reflect prevailing negative sentiments against the Third. I don't think there is a firm answer to this question, and feel it is worthwhile treating the record as it is. I do this with the full knowledge that one simple article or study can change the entire historical discussion. But that is just part of the job in Egyptology. If the account is accurate as I have presented it, then Ketty committed something of a war crime, in the very heartland of pre-dynastic Egypt, if it was altered in subsequent versions and generations, then perhaps Keti merely engaged in warfare at this location, and the result was embellished to discredit him as a political figure. Indeed, it is hard to even be certain when this event occurred. I have placed the sack around 2045 because the Theban king Montuhotep II, who probably came to the throne around 2060, recorded the event in the 14th year of his reign. But depending on when you date this entire era, and there is a lot of debate about it, the sack could have occurred much later. Unfortunately, historians remain uncertain. I have to admit that a little part of my decision to present this tale as it is written comes from the fact that it makes for a dramatic moment, and livens up the narrative a bit more. Not that the first intermediate period is undramatic in the slightest, but sometimes a terrible act is more interesting to discuss than a simple record of campaigns. So, the Egyptian History Podcast considers it a reasonable scenario to suggest that the III, or at least one of the northern rulers, committed a war crime, he allowed his troops to enter the town of Thinus and pillage the royal necropolis, plundering the tombs. As Thinus was close by to Abydos, it is incredibly likely that there were a great many ancient royal or noble tombs here. As such, the sack of Thinus was not just a war crime in itself, but an affront to divine power, and a besmirching of the ancestor worship which the Egyptians held so dear. To the poor fortune of Ketty, this would damn him in subsequent memory, and cast doubt on the legitimacy of his household. It is now 2040 BCE, 30 years since this episode began. The House of Keti is under the command of Meri Kare, a king whom we met in episode 25. The House of Intef at Thebes is being led by a man named Montuhotep II. These two rulers, figureheads of their houses and bitter rivals for the kingship of a unified Egypt. Are locked in struggle. Intermittent conflict and warfare have been plaguing these two households for decades, and in this, the final section of the episode, we reach the bloody climax of the First Intermediate Period. When the war began in earnest, the House of Ketty had come out swinging, and achieved some early knockdown blows against their southern rivals. Pushing into the Abydos region, they sacked Thinis, around 2045, and put the enemy to flight. This was treated as something of a war crime, even making its way into the Theban records as the Year of the Crime of Thinnis. The sacrilegious act pushed Montuhotep II into a resurgent effort to defeat his northern rivals, and the Theban soldiers now came onto the offensive once more. Soon they had retaken Abydos. And strengthened the fortress. Montuhotep now moved northwards against Asyut, a town that had bitterly resisted Theban advances for many years. Now, despite having been the centre of early resistance, Asyut fell to the Theban soldiers. Montuhotep was in a strong position at this moment, and had rebounded against the earlier victories which were achieved by the northern kings. From his household in Thebes, Montuhotep had already outdone his predecessors, but like any warlord, he was not satisfied with a job half done. And Montuhotep was a warlord. There are no two ways about this question. His personal name, Montuhotep, translates to Montu is satisfied, referring to a war deity who was a patron god of the Theban region. In his most common manifestation, Montu was a falcon-headed war god, who was venerated in Upper Egypt, from the early Old Kingdom, right through to the late period, nearly 2000 years later. Talk about your heavy hitters. That one would name their son after a war deity, tells you a fair bit about the priorities of the Theban kings. They were not messing around in their quest to claim the Egyptian kingship, and the reign of Montuhotep II bore full fruit. That's right, folks. I'm afraid the time has come for the house of Keti to take its final bow. The Theban soldiers continued to push northward after their conquest of Asyut. And over the course of several years, bearing in mind that campaigns generally only take place during the summer, they advanced downstream. It is likely that heavy fighting occurred throughout this period, for in the monumental temple constructed at Thebes by Montuhotep, a large burial cache of soldiers was found. Each of the troops buried in this large grave bore the cartouche of Montuhotep II, suggesting that these were particularly esteemed warriors of the Theban army. Perhaps they had died in acts of heroism, or achieved particularly significant victories in battle during their lives. We may never know, but this burial testifies to the violence of reunification, and the aggressive advance of the Theban army. Still, all wars must end one day. Montuhotep II's troops reached Heracleopolis around year 39 of his reign, and the house of Keti was defeated at last. Merikare, a king of whom I am quite fond, may have perished in the fighting, or died shortly before this event. Either way, the death of Merikare signalled the end of the house of Keti, and the defeat of this household was achieved soon after his death. Looking back on the House of Keti, we should not judge them too harshly, despite their apparent war crime at Thinis. They had given the north stability for over a century, and provided the means by which Egypt could recover economically from the famine and climate change that had plagued the kingdom from the 6th to 8th dynasties. Indeed, I think the House of Keti should actually be considered a fairly successful ruling dynasty. Maybe they did not manage to achieve the unification of Egypt, and they will always go down in history as the losers of the first intermediate period, but they seem to have been capable rulers, who maintained a strong, secure, and peaceful system in the north. It was really only historical accident that they, rather than the Thebans, were the ones to lose. So... Even though the household of Keti has been defeated, let us not judge them too harshly, and more importantly, let's not forget them. Montuhotep II establishes the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, but the Egyptians were not aware that this period had now begun. They knew that the kingdom was reunified, but the idea of it being an entirely new historical epoch is slightly different. The conflict with the House of Keti influenced the House of Intef in a profound manner. And as we will see in the coming episodes, the response between the House of Intef to their defeated rivals will sometimes help shape their propaganda and the way they present themselves as the new kings of Upper and Lower Egypt. For now, the most important thing is that Egypt is reunified. To mark the occasion... Montuhotep altered one of his many throne names to he who unifies the two lands, cementing his position as the founder of a new royal household, a truly legitimate king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Like Namer of episode 1, Montuhotep's achievement is going to enable him to be remembered for centuries and be marked as one of the greatest rulers in the Egyptian lineage. Join us soon for episode twenty-seven, when we will begin the reign of Montuhotep II in earnest. Egypt is reunified, and we now begin a new era. I'm Dominic Perry and this is the Egyptian History Podcast.